Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. What do you love about music? To begin with? Everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Nearing their four-decade anniversary as a band, Wire is making music that's as fresh and challenging as ever. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Wire joins us at the Goose Island Barrel House for an interview and performance. Then we'll review the latest albums from hip-hop duo Blackalicious and indie rockers Low. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and later on in the show, we're going to review this new Blackalicious album. And it has been 10 years since the hip-hop duo Blackalicious put out a new studio album. And Jim, there has been a flood of long overdue releases in the last year or so. We had D'Angelo with his mm. first album in more than a decade the long-awaited Dr. Dre album finally came out a few weeks ago. Divine Styler, a great hip-hop artist who we hadn't heard from in years, yeah. finally came out with a new album in, in recent months, and now this new Blackalicious record. Well, you just can't rush artistic inspiration, Greg. That's later in the show, but first we have some music news. That is Whitney Houston, of course, with I Want to Dance with Somebody. Greg, although Whitney died in February of 2012, she's going to be dancing with us again. Or at least the hologram of her is going to be uh, cavorting on stage. We've covered this a couple of times in recent years where techie geniuses have created holograms of deceased artists. And they are now touring where that artist obviously no longer can. A Greek billionaire named Alki David, the CEO of a hologram USA, is going to bring Whitney back to life. It's going to take about a year, he says. We need to finalize the script for the show, but it should be a relatively smooth process. It's nice to hear that death does not derail the arts. In recent years, we've seen holograms of Buddy Holly, of Roy Orbison, Patsy Cline, Liberace. People may remember Tupac and Snoop Dogg interacting on stage at Coachella. This company was behind many of those. It's got plans for other hologram resurrections, second comings. But this isn't even new. For years, there's been an Elvis tour with members of Elvis's backing bands performing with, with the king on a screen, right? We've seen this with Sinatra, other artists. Greg, there's been that cliche forever that death is a great career move in rock and roll. I'm not so sure about that. But certainly death doesn't seem to be any impediment anymore to stopping a career. Jim, I got to say this is a terrifying trend. It seems to be growing by the minute. But there might be some listeners out there who think it's pretty cool and might have a particular performer in mind that they think should come back as a hologram. If you have any suggestions about that, give us a call at 888-859-1800. 
That is Aretha Franklin with a performance of How I Got Over from the 1972 gospel album Amazing Grace. One of the great gospel albums of all time. In uh, 2012, we had Aaron Cohen, the critic, on the show, had written a book about that particular subject, making the case, you know, the best-selling gospel album of all time. Aretha Franklin, at the absolute height of her powers, performing the music that gave her her start, basically. And now we've got this film that was also created that night. Sidney Pollack, no less, was the director. director, I mean, we're talking a guy with some serious credentials, absolutely. He filmed the entire performance, but for more than 40 years, this concert film has been in limbo. There's been a lot of litigation. There's been a whole series of legal proceedings in the last month regarding this film. It looked like we were this close, and I'm holding my fingers about uh, (laughs) a centimeter apart, Jim. I'll vouch for that. To uh, showing these films at two major film festivals, one in Telluride, one in Toronto. Aretha and her attorneys stepped in and blocked the films from being shown. There is now a legal proceeding going on between her and the documentary producer, Alan Elliott, Sidney Pollack, of course, is is now dead. But uh, Elliott was carrying through Pollock's wish, which was to finally get this film into theaters so that the public could see this performance by Aretha Franklin. Now, for some reason, Aretha seems to think that it's not a good idea to show this movie. She has apparently seen the movie Apparently, she loves it. But guess what? I think there might be just a little bit of a money issue going on yeah, here. I bet like, that's what it's about. Who is going to benefit from this movie? Is there anything to benefit from this movie? So the legal arcana here is that she won her initial proceeding blocking the release of the movie because she said it had violated her copyright law, her right to publicity, and had violated the federal anti bootlegging statute. A judge agreed with her, and as a result of that, the film's showings were blocked at those two film festivals. Another thing that she was raising was that she never agreed in the first place to allow a movie to be made. But now the producer of the film says he has uncovered a document, a personal service contract that Franklin signed with both the movie studio and the record label, effectively giving them full rights to the material filmed in that Watts church. Who is going to win this case? I think it's going to drag on for many, many more months before we come to a resolution. But let's hope there is one. Well, we just this is a historic document. Yeah. We want to see the movie, and hopefully Aretha Franklin will get the money she feels she deserves so that it can be seen by the general public. This great You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that's a little bit of the song Ex-Lion Tamer from Pink Flag, the 1977 debut by art punk innovators Wire. Now, Pink Flag, I mean, that is one of the great albums of all time. It catapulted the band to critical success with its fragment-like bursts, these 
blasts of melody and noise that only lasted for seconds at a time in some cases. And Wire has always stubbornly refused to stagnate musically, at times refusing to even play older material live. After that incredible trilogy of albums right out of the box, Pink Flag, Chairs Missing, and 154, they took some time off and then reemerged in 1987 with a very different sound. And that phase lasted until the early 90s, and the band again went away. In 2003, they reunited again for a third phase of their career that's still going strong. They just released their 14th studio album this year, and Jim, you had that on your mid-year top 10, right? I absolutely did, Greg. I'm a big fan of this band, who I've also been critical at some times, and as people may or may not know, I am a, sort of a footnote in the history of Wire. We'll get to that later in the show. We were lucky enough to host a special performance and a chat with Wire in front of a live audience at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago. The current lineup of the band includes guitarist Colin Newman, bassist Graham Lewis, the very soft-spoken drummer Robert Gray. They were all there from the beginning. But I started out the interview by asking the newest member of the group, guitarist Matthew Sims, about how he got the call inviting him to join this legendary band. I got the call to join. I was in the supermarket, and that would this is the day after, the, the evening after my first time playing with them. Were you a fan? Of course. What point did you become a Wire fan? Um, it was actually when the first three records were reissued and I read a feature in Mojo magazine. Matthew, you're the first member of Wire that it was not a founding member of Wire. That, that's got to be a little bit of an intimidating situation to step into that role. How did you sort of you know, incorporate the band's history into what you're doing as a player, if at all, bringing it I, forward. I'm very much about now and the future, so I don't think intimidation is kind of, it's not really what I'm thinking about, to be honest. <laughs> so the history didn't in, in, intimidate you in terms of what you well, thought? Well, no, I'm, a, I'm a fan, and, and um, I'm a fan of making stuff that's good and making it now, so mm-hmm. that's kind of what I'm about. <laughs> well, that is the most inspiring thing to me about Wire is it is always about be here now. What are we creating now? What are we about to do in half an hour to terrorize these people with our our musical instruments? But, you know, I've spent my entire professional career trying to tell the story of Wire to the world, so we have to go into a little bit of history. It's going to be four decades soon, since fall of 76 when you came together, right? Well, we, we count the 1st of April 77 as the, as the official founding date of the band because uh, that was the first gig that the, the sort of classic four-piece performed. It was after... We, we were originally a five-piece. I mean, the sort of shortest way to describe it is we were somebody else's band and we kicked out the f- founder of that band. Poor George Gill. <clears throat> yeah, poor George Gill. Uh, cheeky young art punks that you were, did you ever think you'd still be going in 2015? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I thought, oh, I shall retire as a member of WIRE. <laughs> no. You know what I mean? We were just like living from day to day. We were trying to get a gig. You know what I mean? Like everybody else when you start. But there was a strange... Because, because WIRE is founded on an act of patricide. We kind of... We had to write a set really fast because not only were we getting rid of the guy whose band it was, he'd written most of the material. So, you know, we had to write some, some stuff pretty fast. So the idea of writing things fast to a deadline, because we had a gig coming up, was already implanted in the band very early on. And so that 70s period where we kind of accelerated quite fast 
was kind of, it was just entirely natural. And I, and I think, to be honest, if you'd have, uh, maybe not on day one of founding the band, but probably like after recording Pink Flag, if you'd have said, well, are you still going to be doing this in a few years' time? I don't think anyone would have said no. I'd like you guys to talk about this a little bit too because I think you came up in the punk here and some people have associated you with punk but I thought from the start it seemed like there was a very distinct effort on your part to separate yourselves even from the bands that you were associated with I mean we have in a way more in common with the, that American sort of New York set of bands it was already embarrassing the number of sort of punk clone, you know, sort of junior Johnny Rottens that there were yeah, out there. Yeah. Just like another bunch of people doing rock and roll. And, and in they a actually kind of hated sloppy us. Way. Yeah. They hate they, the the punks actually hated us. I mean, the, 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 from a British perspective, a ge- you know, you're talking about place and generation. So for people of our generation from Britain, there was no way we were a punk band. Yeah. We were too weird. Our songs were too short or too slow. We were saying all the wrong things, you know. Mm. It was, you know and, we, and we looked too smart. Yeah, yeah that, was the, that was the thing, because punk seemed to uh, celebrate messiness, getting drunk and falling over and all of that kind of stuff, which you can do at any time, but that wasn't really what we were up to, you know. And we, and we just kept developing from there. We liked things being tight and clean. You uh, famously made three now incredibly influential records, and a very controversial live record. And then you went away. And that seemed part of the band's way of operating throughout its history. We've got something to say, we say it, and then we, we don't force the issue, we go away. None of it's <laughs> deliberate. We've been credited with way more than we've actually done, I think. Uh, <laughs> I, I, there was, you know, circumstance. Yeah, it caused the bus to drive off the cliff in, in early 1980. Anyone who's, who's read Wilson Neat's book on the BAM will know that that's, uh, that was quite a difficult period for everybody. Now here is Wire performing a song from that first era of the band, Used To, from their 1978 album, Chairs Missing, live on Sound Opinions.
Used to by Wire, live on Sound Opinions at the Goose Island Barrel House. You can catch video of the entire set by the band on our website, soundopinions.org. We'll have more performances and conversation with Wire in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and the song you're hearing is Ahead by our guest this week, Wire. That's from their 1987 album, The Ideal Copy, which was the first record of the second period of Wire. Now remember, Wire had recorded that 1-2-3 punch of Pink Flag, Chairs Missing, and 1-5-4 in the late 70s. Then they went on hiatus. When they reemerged, they had a very different electronic-based sound, and listeners had very strong feelings about it. The band recently joined us for a live taping at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago, 
And I wanted to ask about the reaction to their new sound during that era. People that I knew at the time who were big fans of the first three records were absolutely appalled. Yes, they were. When, when you came back and, and there was that, you know, keyboards, what, what, you know, it was just, it was just shocking to some, some people, which it's I imagine was... rock. That's exactly... It wasn't rock, man. Exactly. And it wasn't much of a keyboard. But, it was like a $69 Casio radio shack. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wasn't. It was an SK-1. It's one of the, yeah, it was this big. It was this big. It was, it was one of the finest instruments ever made. I've had six... It had that barking dog key. Remember that? Yeah, go, we loved it. Yeah, it was good for sound change. You love that. I loved it. I still do. But we did find a solution for that, as, as Greg was saying about people hating us. It was before we were going to do this tour in, I think it was like 80, 87, Brian Grant, who was our manager, and we said, what we're going to do is we're not going to play anything old. And Brian just went, no. He said, if you're going to do that, he said, I want volunteers and you're going to go to New York and you're going to do seven days of interviews and phoners. But at the end of that, we had an in-person interview, which was him. Jim DeRogatis. Uh... Right? Before we'd gone, Bruce and I were having a conversation with a guy and he was saying, what are you doing? We said, this, this, this. And we said, ideally, what we would like is to have a band a cover band that would play like all of the records and we could send them out so people would be happy, right? And we could get on with what we're doing. So anyway, at the end of this interview, Jim says, oh, I've got a group. And I thought, oh, fabulous. You know what I mean? Here we go again. And he says, we play Pink Flag. I said, what? All of it? He said, yeah. I said, what, with the gaps? He said, yeah, with the gaps. I said, what do you do... When the first side finishes, he said, oh, the bass player says, side two. <laughs> we went, wow, can you do the New York show? Because you were living in Hoboken, yeah? So that was that, and we were like, wow, you know, we've got something anyway. You know, something's fallen our way in a kind of Duchampian way. Anyway, what happened was, I don't know, about a couple of weeks later, Brian said, you know those guys you were talking about? He said, they're going to do the whole tour. He said, they've never seen America, and they're going to get in a van, take their vacations, and do all of it. And that was our solution. It didn't really help things too much, because people said, the best thing someone said to me in L.A. was, you know, the opening band, their material's better than Wires. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's get a taste of what Wire sounds like with their real drummer. Here's the song, Split Your Ends, from their new self-titled album, Live on Sound Opinions. Under the hammer, a celebration of childhood, an impeding stammer. Visual sand fails, estimates broken, shooting in the shooting forest, on the roof and in the hunt, we've got five cents, a gold break, 
friend, your wife must get your Tiny terrors Orange flyway Box above, don't hit below Speeding through the ever Changing seasons People come and go Shooting through the shooting forest On the roof and in the heart In the guy's presence A gold plate Meant you wait but it's your Wire with Split Your Ends, live on Sound Opinions from the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago. Let's return to our conversation with Colin, Graham, Robert, and Matthew. Greg brought up the weird story of Wire's first and only appearance on The Tonight Show, where they had an awkward encounter with guest host Suzanne Summers. I'll let Greg take it from there. So you guys got this national forum for the first time in this country, a truly national forum, one of the most watched television shows in, in America. Back when the three networks were like what there was, yeah. And, and you come out and play, play drill um, <laughs> and just abuse the audience, the television audience. That's a lie. And I mean no, that no, in a loving way. That is a complete <laughs> fabrication. They, they, didn't, they didn't really give us many options, actually. Mm. It was originally going to be like, right, you have to, we do two songs, so we were going to do like, the latest single ahead and then and then we were going to do we were going to do drill as a second song mm. and then they cut us down to one song and they they, they were like it was all very uncomfortable and mm. it, it was, they weren't very band friendly well the reason I mean, the reason no. we got cut down though was we got cut down because we, you know you do this sort of like camera run through rehearsal and we did ahead and they'd asked us to edit it as well and we went yeah okay we could do that and we edited something out and we played ahead and the cameraman ran around and all that stuff and they went oh, uh, upstairs they said it's great you know will you do it again and we did it again they went it's perfect guys you know 
And then we played drill. And they were like, wow, you know, oh, upstairs was really happy about this too, you know. And they said, will you play it again for us? And so we played it again. And then there was, all, everything kind of went weird. And people started talking to each other. And they were going, um, someone upstairs says, um, it was different that time. <laughs> and they said, yeah, it's different every time. And that's when they, a little bit later they said, oh, you've only got one song now. So they expected us to play the single, and we went, oh, we're going to play Drill. And it'll and be that, different. And it was downhill all the way after that. Suzanne Summers' quote, I just got to read this. <laughs> I was trying to sing along, but I couldn't catch the words. You're sort of a far-out group. That was her two-sentence yeah, sort of. critique. Well, the thing oh, about it was well, we didn't, know who, she, we didn't know. know who she was because she yeah. didn't bother to come and introduce herself. Yeah. So yeah, when this on. woman... In, in rather punky leather clothes came over. He was like, okay, who are you, you know? She'd gone and said hello to Mel Brooks. No, but she, you guys also had that video camera that you were shoving oh, yeah. in her face, <laughs> yeah, I know. What filming her as she was trying to interview you on the biggest television yeah. show in America. It was just, it, it, was, a weird, it was a weird, it was, a, it was yeah. like a weird whole kind of like freak show. Well, how'd you get the name Wire? Obviously, uh, one takes these things seriously, and we were looking for a name that didn't really mean anything. And so wire doesn't mean anything? Nothing at all, no. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, that's great. Well, <laughs> oh, am I on video? <laughs> Hello there. How are you? Well, that's real interesting. You're sort of a far-out kind of group, you know? Uh, I doubt it. What Wire has meant to me as a critic is consistently challenging me, starting with that notion of nostalgia being the kiss of death. If you look it up in the dictionary, nostalgia was coined during the Napoleonic Wars as a disease for soldiers who were taken so far from their homes that it was a physical ailment, right? It was a sickness. And you have fought that now for almost 40 years, consistently saying, we make art that is about now, this moment, how the heck have you held on to that be-here-now aesthetic for so long? It's just in the DNA of the band. I I mean, to be quite honest, we can't do it any other way. If we were to like, try and sort of embrace a nostalgia circuit, I think there would just be, the band would just wander off. Yeah, just, just AWL. It's just not, it's not interesting enough. No. That, I mean, it's a, it's a hard uphill struggle. You know, we'll play... You, know, you still get people who come to shows who think that, you know, because they paid their however many dollars they have for the show, they're entitled to have... It's like a restaurant, you know. I want to have this, this, and this, and this because I paid my dollars for the show. But you especially get that attitude in America. And, you know, meeting, meeting a sort of this British quite determined sort of attitude of, no, we're going to do what we want to do because that's the thing we can do best... We we aren't entertainment. That's the that's the that's the main point about why it's not it's not an entertainment. It's it's it doesn't come from that stand, standpoint. It doesn't mean say there's no entertainment in it. It can be entertaining, but we don't we don't start from the point of view of entertainment. And an entertainer is someone who will try and please the audience in every circumstance, <clears throat> and is made happy by that. And our, our our viewpoint is we want to give you the best thing we can give you. Which is the newest thing? Which is the got. newest thing, or the thing that we're excited about playing, yeah. and the thing that we, the, the thing that we want to say, and you know, luckily, we've kept an audience of that of people who say, yeah, 
Okay, yeah, no, that's, that's really good. We, I, I've experienced... I mean, we've had on this tour so many people coming and saying, this is the best time we've ever seen you. And really, honestly, it's, it's, you know, it's about being kind of true to yourself and being kind of real about this. As Jim mentioned earlier, you know, 39, 38 years as a band, you start treading water, start looking back, recycling... You guys are actually creating more new stuff now, you know, at, at as high a rate as, as, as ever, it seems like. With this new record, we should talk about it, self-titled, 1920 songs. You could have, you could have made two records out of mm. that. What accounts for this tremendous outpouring of new well, material? Well, he helps. Matthew. He helps a lot. We tried to give him the spotlight. You notice how self-effacing <laughs> he was. He doesn't need a spotlight. He's, he's got the hair. <laughs> Yeah, he's the only one with the hair. Well, that's what someone said the other night, anyway. I mean, uh, actually, somebody said... I can't remember which gig it was. I mean, they all become a blur after a while on this tour. But the, the no, guy no. came up. The guy came after, uh, afterwards, and he said, the thing about you guys is that, you know, I, I see other bands of, of your vintage going around. He didn't say it quite so. He was quite drunk, so he didn't say it quite in this way. But uh, other bands of your vintage going around. And basically what they do is they play the new songs from the new album, but they sound just like the old songs from the old albums. And then they play all the old songs from the old albums, and everybody cheers, and they go home. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis. We're here in the Goose Island Barrel House with Wire, and we would like to thank Colin Graham Robert and Matthew for being our guests today, guys. Thanks so much for coming in. It's, Thank it's you. always fun with you guys. Let's hear one last song from Wire. This is Joust and Jostle from its self-titled album, Live on Sound Opinions. The Joust and Jostle off the wall they raise their hands to balance me there winding up they smell the feet grab on the sticks to the doofa ice cream dancer dancing shoes the whistle blows the game is on in a place in which we belong The Flying Dutchman Touches land TV Bugs the smoky Tans the plant The minerals Darry's throat I'll fill walls They make us stronger Way ahead is Hard and long We cross our hearts Hope to die Love with hope We start to fly
That was Joust and Jostle, the final song from Wire on Sound Opinions, live at the Goose Island Barrel House in Chicago. To watch videos of their entire performance, visit us at soundopinions.org. Have a comment on Wire or anything in the musical universe? Give us a call for the air at 888-859-1800. Coming up, we'll review the new releases from hip-hop duo Blackalicious and indie rockers Low. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Nationalism ripping the drum beats, ripping the funk, ripping the rhythm, bringing the jazz, R&B, blues, harder than prison yard, populations with no rehabilitation is given. I am the seat on the bus that Rosa Parks was sitting in. I am Timbuktu, they want to keep me hitting. Black as a mother of civilization, a black woman first will be last, so black as a beginning and the ending. Black is an African emblem, blacker than blacker than blacker than blacker than infinite. Blacks in a grassroots rally assembling, unifying together, trying to make a little difference. Blacker than a black is a fist displayed in a ray on the back of your pick. Every day come parlay and kick back as I rip. Put your hands in the mist. This is black Blackalicious. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's a track called Blacka from the new Blackalicious album, Imani Volume 1. Blackalicious, one of those hip-hop groups that really had a tremendous impact on the last 20 years. You wouldn't think commercially, but certainly as an influence and as a a voice of West Coast indie hip-hop, you can do no better than Blackalicious. Started out in Sacramento, California in the late 80s when Timothy Parker and Xavier Mosley met in high school. Parker dubbed himself Gift of Gab. Xavier Mosley became... Chief XL, and they ended up together at the uh, University of California in Davis in the early 90s. There they met some like-minded people. DJ Shadow was there, Latif, the truth speaker, lyrics born. This became the core of the Soul Sides label and artist collective, one of the most important labels out of the West Coast in the 90s, not associated at all with the gangster movement from Southern California that it was uh, shaping up around Los Angeles. This was a Northern California take on hip-hop, more psychedelic, more higher consciousness, more of a depth in terms of the kind of musical influences they were bringing into their recordings, a different take on West Coast hip-hop that coalesced around that Soul Sides label of which Blackalicious was a big part. They ended up signing a a major label deal in the early 2000s, and they put out a masterpiece in 2002 called Blazing Arrow. Solo projects and another Blackalicious album followed in 2005. That was their third album called The Craft. And then 
10 years of nothing. What are they up to? What is Gift of Gab and Chief XL doing? Well, they are returning in a big way. Black Alicious, the new album, it's called Volume 1 for a reason. They say there is going to be a trilogy of Black Alicious albums around this theme. The word Imani means faith in Swahili. So this is the first of three projects. Here's a track from the Imani Volume 1 record. It's called Escape from Blacklicious on Sound Opinions. Where he came up at, it was like killer die. People with guns packed, living that ill life. Where poverty was rampant, bloody murder in the night. And people striving, some with others wouldn't win the fight. But see, this one dude lived on the other side of town, a big house, father and mother tried to give him everything he wanted, things that others tried. To have him wanted to obtain, they taught the brother ride. From all around then, crack epidemic hit. The brother selling drugs is who the ladies kicked it with. It seems they had the most respect as well as dividends. He got out of going to school so he could get it in. Blackalicious with Escape from the new album, Imani, Volume 1. Greg, you mentioned Imani is Swahili for faith. They've needed it. Gift of Gab suffered in 2012 kidney failure, and uh, he's on dialysis. He's awaiting a kidney donor. You mentioned the theme for this record. I think that uh, perseverance, faith, belief in oneself, belief in a higher power are all part of the mix of what's going on here. It's a philosophical album. Lyrically, Gab remains an incredibly deft and complex rhymer. His partner, Excel, is a really talented mixer, bringing in sounds from across genres and creating these dense, wonderful, psychedelic, but accessible musical backgrounds. This is my kind of West Coast rap, Greg. This is rap about a real black community, about hopes, about dreams, without the dark nihilism that characterizes so much of the gangster rap from the West Coast, I don't think they've lost a step. If you didn't know this album is 2015, the last was 2005, you would think they get better with every release. It just so happens that it took a decade for this release to come down the pike. This is another wonderful hip-hop release in a period that we've seen quite a few very inventive and very non-cliched, non-gangster rap records over the last year. I, I just think it's an absolute buy-it. 
Jim, what I like about this record the most is that it acts like the last 10 years didn't happen. It's like, okay, we've been gone for 10 years, but nothing's happened there that's uh, really interested us all that much. You know, we're just going to pick up where we left off. Well, at the same time, without being retro. Right, exactly. There's no, you know, sense of like, okay, we're going to add some of that EDM flavor in here because that's really (laughs) hot now. They're They're not doing that. You know, there's no Euro pop kind of influence on this record at all. And I do love that about them. They they really came to hip-hop with the idea that anything is possible, we can do anything we want, but there's an element of uplift and optimism and, you know, dare I say, spirituality about Blackalicious music that carries over into this project. At the same time, it's not all sunshine. I mean, there was like there, there's tracks on this record that remind me of like the car wash soundtrack or Earth, Wind and Fire from the 70s. Yeah. But at the same time, there's darkness as well. And that song we just played, Escape, talking about the young gun who used to get respect, but now he's turning 30 and no one cares. You know, it's kind of like, look at yourself. What are you doing with your life? How do you project yourself as an adult? You know, life is going to go on, and is it going to leave you behind? You know, or are you going to grow into it, grow with it? I think that's really what they're talking about here on this record. You know, the whole idea of faith, resilience, working through obstacles. Not everything is going to work out exactly the way you planned. As you mentioned, Jim, it's very, very real to someone like Gift of Gab going through the issues that he's going through. So you're seeing that sense of resilience about this record. But it's a wonderful time capsule of where Blackalicious has been and where they want to go. The question they asked that sort of haunts this record, can there be a revolution without carnage and waste? In other words, they're talking about a revolution of the mind that doesn't mean carnage on the streets because they're they're really commenting on what's going on now in America. You know, the, the fact that a lot of these issues in the civil rights movement haven't gone away. And it really kind of underscores what this whole project is about. It's a wonderful, thoughtful record from Black Blackalicious. I'm glad they're back. It's a buy it album for me. Sound Opinions, and that is a song called Gentle, the first track on the 11th album by Lowe. Lowe is a trio from Duluth, Minnesota. Lowe formed in 1993. They're going on uh, 22, 23 years as a band. As I said, this is their 11th album. They've always hated the phrase that the press has generally laid on them, slowcore. But they picked up the mantle, I think, of this wonderful, quiet, understated, very emotional, and sometimes slow music from Galaxy 500. They took it many new places. Over the course of those 11 albums, they've worked with some stellar producers, Steve Albini, Chad Blake, Dave Fridman, always keeping the core of their essential sound, but taking it in new directions. We had them on the show back in spring of 2011. You're a huge fan of this band. For this album, Greg, They went to uh, Justin Vernon's studio in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. The trio is now and has been for some time. Alan Sparhawk, guitar and vocals. His wife, Mimi Parker, drums and vocals. And uh, still the new guy, after I think like a decade and change, Steve Garrington on bass. 
Let's hear a tune from the new album, and we'll come back and give our opinions. This is The Innocence from Lowe's album Ones and Sixes on Sound Opinions. Innocence from the new Low album, Ones and Sixes. That is a great track, Mimi Parker singing the vocal. You know, she's usually the one that is the soothing balm on their records. You know, she's the one that kind of says, okay, everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And that song she sings, All You Innocents Make a Run For It. I mean, yeah. she's basically saying, get the hell out while there's still time. And that's a very disquieting notion. You know, it really makes me cringe every time I hear people saying, well, they're so quiet and they're so slow and... I'm going, you know, they may be quiet, but there's, it's not that type of band. I mean, this is very disquieting music to me. There's levels to this music that can give you nightmares if you listen to it closely enough. Well, you know, uh, Mimi and Alan are Mormons, and there is this element of sort of apocalyptic vision sometimes, and Mimi has suffered from depression. They've canceled tours at times. There is not all quiet, mellow, soothing. It's not lullabies. No, no, no. no, 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 These are not lullabies. Do not sing these to your young children at night to (laughs) help them go to sleep. And and that's, you know, I, I love that aspect of it. But, you know, at the same time, this music is fascinating in the way it works with electronic static and all these kind of textures reminds me a little bit of their 2007 album drums and guns when they were kind of experimenting with that more uh, subterranean type of Mm. vibe you know the bass lines some of the bass lines on this song are like hip-hop level bass lines i mean they're quaking you know and from that standpoint they're in new territory here i think what you said earlier was very accurate jim is that they find new ways to work with this palette and finding new ways to express themselves. This record is really about the idea of self-knowledge, I think, revealing itself so slowly, and then when it does, it's like that one track called Landslide. Mm. That's what it feels like. It's nine minutes of build, (laughs) and then it just comes crashing down, and it's a very disquieting, powerful effect. Buy it for me all the way on ones and sixes. Ones and sixes is a buy it for me too, Greg. I will confess... It took a while for this album to grow on me. The reason I wanted to play The Innocence is that's the track that did it for me. 
This is a quieter, low album. I think with The Great Destroyer back in 2005, or maybe even with Secret Name before that, they got a little more rocky, Mm -hmm. and the contrast in dynamics became more extreme. They were still very quiet, low, and then there was really apocalyptic, just, you know, landslide low, like you said. You have to wait for landslide almost at the end of the album to, you know, get that here. But I always question, with a band that has given me so much pleasure over more than 20 years, it's much like Yola Tango, who we recently reviewed, another trio with, uh, you know, guitarist up front and wife uh, drummer uh, in the back. They've earned the right for us to give it more than one or two cursory listens. Right. What's happening here? Where are they going? They always go somewhere new. And then when it clicked for me, I now think it's one of my favorite Low albums. Right. So you think you know Low, you think you've heard it all before, you haven't. Give it a shot. Ones and sixes, an enthusiastic double buy it. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, guess what? Alice Cooper is going to visit us. Uh, no guillotine in sight. but I- I'm uh, scared already. We're going to be interviewing the great Alice Cooper. We have some thank yous to say for The Wire Show, Adam Yaffe, Andrew Gill, Anthony Martinez, Jake Hubert, and the Goose Island Barrel House. Sound Opinions, as always, is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Evan Chung, and Alex Claiborne. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Conan from Pittsburgh. Just wanted to call and thank you for your recent rebroadcast of your interview with Oliver Sacks. I was previously unfamiliar with him or his work, and serendipitously earlier that week, my wife, who's a researcher in the field of Alzheimer's, asked if I'd heard of uh, Dr. Sachs's passing. And then listening to your show later that week, I was moved by his intelligence, his compassion, and his humor. Two days later, my wife and I watched the recent documentary, Alive Inside, in which Dr. Sachs figures prominently. And the film shows the power of music on the lives of those suffering from dementia. Patients who otherwise were non-responsive in almost every way were moved through musical therapy to communicate and remember and, and interact concisely, which some hadn't done in years. It's really an inspiring and compelling documentary that I think you and any of your listeners would appreciate. So thanks again. I always look forward to the next episode. Hey guys, this is Susan calling from Bozeman, Montana, and you outdid yourselves on the Back to School show. I loved it. I've always been a big fan of Dolly Parton, and I agree with you that her songwriting skills are vastly underrated. And to follow Dolly with Harper Valley PTA was unexpected and really bold. I never thought I liked the song that much, or maybe I just never admitted it because I could sing along to almost the whole thing. So take that, you Harper Valley hypocrites. Love your show. Thanks a lot. And we don't believe you ought to be bringing up your little girl this way. And it was signed by the secretary, Harper Valley PTA.
Hi, this is Leslie Martinich. I'm listening to KUT in Austin, Texas, and I recommend Bobby Rydell's Swinging School for a Back to School song. It's one of my grandchildren's favorites. Chicks, ah! Chicks, ah! Cats, ah! Cool! Great show. Wow. Hey, my name is uh, Tom Fissler, and I'm calling about the episode, uh, the Back to School episode. Uh, first of all, let me just say that I listened to your show. I love it. Three-quarters of the, the bands and the people that you talk about on the show I've never heard of, but because you guys love them and you're so into it, 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 it makes it enjoyable to me. Uh, but this is about the back-to-school episode, one of my favorite back-to-school songs. It's not entirely about being back-to-school, but there's a part of it which really speaks to me, and that's What a Good Boy by the Bare Naked Ladies, where he talks about taking exams, and nobody cares if he passes or fails. It, it, I love that song. It's a beautiful song, and so I'd like for you to add it to your back-to-school list. Love the show. Again, just keep loving music and just keep throwing it at us. Thank you. Go to school, I write here exams of a bus of a fail if I drop out and send anyone give a damn. And if they do, they'll soon forget, cause it won't take much for me to show my life ain't over yet. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.